Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Susan Margolis Stillman is a freelance writer and trained social worker who lives in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. with her husband and four children. Their second son has a genetic disorder which requires him to be on a feeding tube. His life is hard, which makes Susan's life a bit harder, but she's a born optimist and resilient, having survived a breast cancer diagnosis five years ago. Soon after Susan completed treatment for her cancer, her mother had a recurrence of the melanoma diagnosed in her in 2002. As her mother's cancer progressed, Susan adjusted to the reality that both of her once healthy and active parents needed help with a range of care issues. What she's learned caring for herself and members of her own family, plus a few other random pressing thoughts, can be found in Susan's blog, which is called Let Me Tell You Something. I'm thrilled to have her here today to tell us her story. Susan Stillman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jana. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, your siblings, your work as a social worker, and that before we get into talking about uh, your son. I grew up in the Washington suburbs in Rockville, Maryland. I am the middle child of an older sibling and a younger sister. And I was a social worker at Johns Hopkins Oncology Center for seven years before I got married and had children. And little did I know that that would serve me well as I became a caregiver with my second child who has the genetic disease that you mentioned, then with my own cancer diagnosis and with my mother's. So tell us about your son's genetic disorder. And how old is he now? My son is 17. He's a second child, so I knew right away that something was wrong with him. He had a hard time breastfeeding, so he didn't breastfeed and he would... He took a bottle, and he just had a hard time. He sounded congested a lot, and I was beside myself. And by the time he was one, we were fortunate enough to get a diagnosis of this very rare orphan disease called familial dysautonomia. It's a Jewish genetic disease. So he had a feeding tube when he was six months old, and he's wow. had that. He will have that for the rest of his life. So he's, he's 17 now. Can you tell us a little bit about how your life changed when he was diagnosed? Well, uh, I always say that I'm fortunate, I feel fortunate that he was my second child because I already had made friends with my first child. So I had friends with typical children. So I had a, a support network. It's more difficult, I think, when it's your first child who has a disability. It's harder mm-hmm. to find a place of, with friends and people who understand. And I was determined when I had him not to have it, when he was diagnosed, to have it define my life and take over my life, which I was probably sort of naive at the time. Uh But, you know, I did, I always said, you know, I don't want in 10 years for people to say, oh my gosh, that sucked the life out of that poor woman, you know? Right. So we tried our best to be as normal as possible, which was 
difficult. But we also decided to have more children because we each were, my husband and I were each one of three kids. And we each thought that, I mean, we both thought that it would be better for our oldest child and for our disabled son to to be part of a pack, to have more people around. Mm-hmm. So some people think that's brave. Some people say, oh, you must really love children. And we say, no, we don't really love children. We, we did it for Ben. <laughs> so we had, you know, we had to go through genetic testing with each subsequent pregnancy because right, right. there's a chance of having, there's a one in four chance of having another child with this disease. It's a recessive gene. So how else does it present besides the fact that he needs to be on a feeding tube? Well, we're fortunate. You know, there's a big range of these people who have familial dysautonomia. Ben is uh, cognitively with it, I like to say. He walks, he talks, although he's fragile, his balance and gait are not particularly good. He now eats by mouth in addition to the feeding tube. But when he is unwell, sort of one of the hallmarks of this awful disease is that he has an autonomic crisis. And that's defined as as a constellation of symptoms where he feels unwell and you never know when it's going to strike. Some people think there are certain triggers. We have never been able to identify those with him. So we joke that, oh, you know, maybe because they say maybe it's the heat or maybe it's this. We're like, maybe the stars are not aligned right. Mm -hmm. But you just can't predict when it's going to happen. And what happens is he doesn't feel well, and his heart rate gets very high, and he starts to retch uncontrollably. And it's like otherworldly retching. It's not like we all, if somebody, a typical person retches and then vomits and then it's sort of done. Mm -hmm. This is just uncontrollable retching that can last for hours. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And you don't know when it's going to strike. So you think you're going to go out to dinner and suddenly he doesn't feel well. And so as a family, we would just try to be normal until as the years go on, you figure, okay, one of us will stay home and tend to him. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the family will go out. Mm-hmm. So to make these stop, he needs to be put into a deep sleep. Sometimes, as he's gotten older now, they're milder, but they were so severe that you just have to give him a lot of medication through his feeding tube. Sometimes it would be rectal medicine mm-hmm. um, and sit with him for hours. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'd have to put headphones in to listen to music because I would just feel like I was going to go insane. And he eventually drifts off to sleep and will sleep for a few hours. And it's sort of like a reset button. And then he wakes up and he's okay. He's just sort of hung over from all the medication that we had to give him. So it's awful. And it can happen in clusters. There was a time when he was younger where if I couldn't make it stop, I would be worried about how much medication I was giving him and I'd have to take him to the emergency room. Uh-huh. And that became routine for a few years where they, everybody knew us in the ER. <laughs> Yeah. And we had it down to an 18-hour hospital stay. We'd be in the ER. They'd give him an IV. Ultimately, he'd fall asleep. They'd transfer him up to the, the PICU, the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. Mm-hmm. And then he would wake up the next day, and he'd be fine, and we'd push for discharge. Wow. So, But as he's gotten older, we have not taken him to the hospital in years. Mm-hmm. I'm much more comfortable with the amount of medication I give him. But it, they've gotten a little better as he's gotten older. Mm-hmm. And the school nurse is, you know, an integral part of his care because now if it happens at school, they can medicate him. They'll let him sleep in the nurse's room for a couple hours, uh-huh. and then he'll wake up and go back to class. So that 
they've been a godsend. Yeah, so when he was growing up, was he in school? How did his education progress? Well, yeah, he's been in school. He yeah. was in, he, he's been in school the whole time. He is on a diploma track, mm-hmm. although I, I have evolved as a parent of a child with special needs, and I just want him to learn as much as he can. And I'm not, I don't care so much about the diploma at this point in mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I think he can work. I think he will need supported employment. So I don't know if a high school diploma is necessary for him or the most useful use of his time at this point. Right. Although and he does learn, but as I'm joking lately, you know, who needs astronomy, really, to mm-hmm. get a job? <laughs> <laughs> so he goes to school, and he goes to school happily. He's really my hero. He's my little soldier. That's really He cool. gets out of that car with his little, you know, unsteady gait, and I don't mm. know how he manages around that school, but... It's a large public school, and, you know. He's, oh, he's in a public school. He's in a public school. Wow. What a trooper. He is, and I'm grateful for the public school and for all the people who are involved in his education and in his care. I really feel a lot of gratitude to them. I think that people get a bad rap. Um, I think it's easier when you have a child who has a definite diagnosis. I don't feel so angry yeah. <laughs> at what they're not doing right. that I think a lot of people experience, but... I'm just grateful for all that they do. So is his life expectancy shortened because of this? And do you anticipate yes. living with you living with you for the duration? Uh, well, that's my latest uh-huh. laundry. Uh, yes. Now they say 50% of these children live till, I think, 40. I don't really spend a lot of energy worrying about the future and what his life expectancy will be. I'm not in denial about it, but none of us know what's going to happen right. to any of us. So, you know, I just don't spend a lot of time. Where I live, there is a wonderful organization called the Jewish Foundation for Group Homes, and we're Jewish, so I need to put them on the waiting list for that, although I'm not sure. Well, they have all kinds of options, apartments. and I mean, some of the residents are more disabled than my son, but I don't think it bothers him. So I have to start thinking about the next phase mm-hmm. of 17. But I can only deal with things a few years at a time. I'm not the person to run down the road and worry about the distant future. <laughs> you know, but that's so often the case, though, with people who are living with someone who is cognitively impaired or whatever. They just You just learn not to look too far ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, why? That's not how I live my life or that I want to. Right. You know, I try to live in the present. We try to give him a good life and his siblings a good life, and we try to have a good life, too. You know, just as caregivers, I don't feel like you have to sacrifice your own happiness or your dreams or the joy you can grab out of life just because you're a caregiver. Not that I take it lightly, but I try to balance all those things. So how old are your kids now? I have a 19-year-old who's a freshman in college. I have three boys and then a girl in that order. So my oldest son is 19, and he's a freshman in college. He lives at college. And Ben is 17. They're 16 months apart. Then I have a a 15-year-old son, and then I have a 12-year-old daughter. And I only had a little bit of help when they were little. I'm fortunate to be a stay-at-home mom, Mm -hmm. which makes it easier, especially with the unknown nature of his disease or, you know, the day-to-day care. It would have been difficult when he was younger for me to work. Although people do it, and they just have wonderful caregivers. They just hire people to help. But when my youngest child was born, I decided to get a full-time nanny because the thought of holding a screaming infant and sitting over a retching child 
gave me, I was pregnant mm-hmm. with my last child, gave mm-hmm. me prepartum depression. Mm-hmm. And people said, gee, I've, I've never heard of that. And I said, well, I made that up. So I had a nanny for five years. And while she was a little skittish about dealing with my son, she was a godsend. She was an angel, and she could at least deal with my other children so that I could tend to my son when he was sick, mm-hmm. when he was unwell. Mm-hmm. There's no shame to getting help because, as somebody said at the end, at the end of your life, nobody's going to say, congratulations, you didn't have any help. Right. Good for you. Right. So how did your other kids react to Ben's illness? How have they coped? Oh, they're just great. You know, when he's sick, it's such an awful noise. They scatter to other parts of the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, now they're older and they can be like, I think Ben's retching or, you know, I think I heard him retch. So they like, they're part of the care team. Mm-hmm. But when it's really bad, they go far away and watch TV and wait till it passes. Uh-huh. But I think it's made them kinder people. And more yeah. They have more empathy for others. Uh-huh. And they're great. I don't think they resent him that he takes so much time. You know, they all get plenty of attention. So he's just their brother. And your husband sounds like he's really supportive too, which is wonderful. Um, oh, yeah. I would say, yeah, I mean, he's an equal. He's my partner. I go away. I left my kids with family members, with paid caregivers. So you've taken some time of, for yourself. That's good. I, I, oh, yes. You have to. I mean, it's a leap of faith. I, I, many times I've gone away, and he's been totally fine. One time I w- went with my husband for a work meeting to Ireland, and he had to go to the hospital. And my dear friend is an internist, and her husband took him to the hospital and spent the night. Or my friend took him and got him admitted, and her husband spent the night with him. Because I couldn't have come, By the time I got back, it would have been over. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Were so you totally you freaked to out? I just felt bad. I wasn't really worried. I mean, again, I'm not in denial. He could have an episode and have a sudden, he could die suddenly. But given what he's been through, I wasn't, they become somewhat routine that I don't immediately go to that place of panic that, oh my God, he's going to die. Right. So more, I just felt bad for him that I wasn't there and for my friends that they had to deal with it. But my friends are so loving and giving and supportive and care about my mental health as well that they were happy to do it. So I finished my trip, you know, and uh-huh. he came home and he was fine. Well, it sounds like you have a really great support group there. Um, yes, I'm very lucky. Yeah. So were you close with your parents growing up? Tell us a little bit about them and then uh, about your mom. Yes, I had a lovely childhood. I had a typical middle-class childhood with regular old parents. (laughs) (laughs) Suburban, middle-class. Yeah, Uh yes, 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 yes. And I think it wasn't until I had kids that I really felt particularly close to to both of them. But, you know, you appreciate your own mother more when you have kids. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they were a big part of my adult life and they lived nearby and they would help me with my kids and when Ben was sick they would help with him and you know they were just a big part of our lives. And then uh, your mom was diagnosed with a melanoma and it it, tell us about that it sounds like it subsided and then came back what happened? She was diagnosed in 2001 or two I can't remember and she had some treatment, and then she was in remission for eight years, mm-hmm. which was great. Yeah. And then it came back, and then it was not great. And it, you know, her last year of life, she was just more debilitated, and she ended up having a lot of pain. 
that she tried a lot of things to control, like arm pain. It was, you know, some kind of nerve pain that they, she tried acupuncture, she saw the pain team. She continued to get treatment. She wanted treatment. She wanted to live. She didn't complain, and she was a real trooper, but it was not, it was hard. My father was her caregiver, but because I lived nearby, and at that point my kids were older, you know, they were in school, or I could, you know, I could leave them at home if my husband was at work. I could help take her to doctor visits and just sort of help. Mm -hmm. How did your dad react to all that? My dad was very strong. He's very strong, and he's optimistic, and Mm -hmm. he, Mm -hmm. she was the love of his life. He was retired, so he could be her caregiver. You know, I would give him a break. It's hard to take someone to the doctor all the time and yeah. do those things. But How he old was, was she when she was diagnosed? Was well, like, she died when she was 74. So okay. She was, you know, they were 74 and 72 when she was sick, but they were healthy. You know, they were yeah. healthy and active, and they had, a lot of, they had a lot of friends and whatnot. But I was in a unique position because I had been an oncology social worker. Right. That I knew a lot about cancer treatment. And about caregivers and about sort of the support that people need. And also, I, you know, we, we could talk a lot. You know, some families shy away from those harder discussions. And my mother didn't like to talk about it a lot. But, you know, I think she knew that she could. Your mother was artistic, wasn't she? Tell me about her. She was. My mother was a lovely lady. She was a really kind, good person. She was very, um, she was very classy, but in an understated way. She did art in her life. She used to sculpt and make jewelry, and she loved nature, and she loved flowers. And my kids always say they remember if I would drop them off at her house, she would take them out for a nature walk when they were little kids Mm because she couldn't stand having them sit in front of the TV. (laughs) Uh (laughs) And she once found, with my nephew, she found a skull like an animal skull, and she's like, oh, ooh, and they put it in a bag, and they took it to the wow. nature center, and the, the nature center helped them identify what it was, and it was like a fox skull. <laughs> she was a lovely, she was a kind person. She was a thoughtful person. She was a good friend. She took care of her mother, who had dementia. Did you um, witness that? Yeah, I yeah. was involved with that. Oh, Although, okay. uh, well, she lived, she was in a group home nearby, uh-huh. and my mother was... She was lived there for seven years, and she lived till she was ninety nine. Mm-hmm. So my mother would go visit prob- almost every day, and I would go visit frequently. And I would take my kids because even if my grandmother didn't really know us, my mother would know that we were there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it made her feel good, and it yeah. made her feel not alone. And yeah. you don't know what somebody with dementia can think right. or know. So I tried to. I learned that from my mother, and I tried to teach my kids that. And what a great lesson for your kids. Yeah. Organically, really too, was. sort of. Oh, absolutely. Know? Yeah. We would go for the Christmas parties, and, you know, they would sing and entertain, and, you know, you teach them just how to greet everybody and talk to everybody. And so I learned that from my mother. She was a really great, a very kind, good person. I always joked she was a much better person than I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a different generation. <laughs> People were polite, more polite in general. <laughs> Susan, in one of your blog posts, you describe your mom's medical care as being, quote, the medical equivalent of too many cooks in the kitchen. (laughs) Can you expand on that and how this affected you as a caregiver with all the specialists? Well, yes, because it's, you know, she had diabetes. 
she had adult onset diabetes. Wow. So she had an endocrinologist. She could see the internist. She had the oncologist. And she was treated at NIH for a while. So she had the radiation oncologist, and she had the pain people there. So what happens, and I knew this from working in the hospitals, there's so many people giving their advice, and it's, there's no central person that it's confusing, and you don't know what to do. A patient doesn't know what to do or whose advice to follow, particularly, so it makes it difficult. I mean, by the end of her life, the oncologist is pretty much the person, and I knew her oncologist because he was my oncologist. So that made it easier, and he talked to me and stuff. And towards the end of her life, she was in so much pain. You know, what happens is my father would call the office and say she's in pain, and you wait for the nurse to call you back, and then the nurse has to talk to the doctor, and then they call you back, and then they call in a prescription. And, you know, it's just not the best model of care. So I really pushed hospice care onto my parents. And my father was very open to it. My mother was less so, but, you know, we had a frank talk, and I said, Mom, I think you need more care. I think Dad needs more care. Dad feels helpless to help you. Mm-hmm. And she said, you mean hospice? And I said, yeah. And she was very sad, and I said, Mom, I want you to live as long as you can. You know, I don't want you to die. I want you to live as long as you can, but I can't watch you live in pain anymore. It's just, this isn't a way to live. So she accepted that, mm-hmm. and she said, can we not call it hospice? And I said, Absolutely. <laughs> Did you we have a code have word? <laughs> well, the, it was called the Jewish Social Service Agency. The acronym is JESA, so that's what Jessa. we called it. Okay. How did your siblings react and, to this? Well, I was the one who was just most involved, so they, I think they were supportive. I was the one who was my father's go-to person and my mother. Uh-huh. Were you the sibling, so, only sibling living nearby? I lived the closest. And um, the other thing, my mother still wanted to get treatment, and that's a tricky thing with hospice because Medicare won't pay for treatment and hospice. Uh But fortunately, she was on a trial, which I didn't really think was such a great idea because I felt like it was a Hail Mary. Hmm. But friends of mine really helped me be like, you know what? It's not your life, Susan. (laughs) It's her life. And I said, you're right. That was a good lesson for me to learn. And because it was a phase two drug, or I can't remember what it was, but she could get that because Medicare didn't pay for it. Mm -hmm. Or if she needed a CAT scan for that, then hospice would discharge her for a couple days and then get her back off. Interesting. You have to learn how to manipulate the system. (laughs) Navigate. Navigate. That's a more diplomatic word. Or manipulate the system, yes. (laughs) Um, and the the great thing about hospice, and my mother, to give you an idea of what a lady she was, when they came to do the intake, I went over there. My mother was fully dressed with makeup and jewelry, and she had put out cookies. Oh, <laughs> she was such a lady, and she was such a warm, lovely hostess. And But what they do is they bring a kit immediately. They bring morphine, and they would go over with my father for, for him to have in the house. And they teach him how to um, administer drugs orally because she could take things by mm-hmm. mouth. And that was just a godsend because suddenly the morphine just got rid of her pain, which was a double-edged sword because I think then she thought she was getting better. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it gave my dad a lot of relief and mm-hmm. all of us, you know, that she wasn't in pain because she was on oxygen at the end of her life. Uh-huh. So how long was she in hospice before she died? Three and a half weeks. Three and a half weeks. Wow. A friend of mine is an oncologist in Europe, 
He trained at Hopkins when I was there, and he said, in Europe, they, they refer to hospice much earlier than oh. we do. But he said the average time in the United States is like three weeks, which is a shame because it does so much good. But uh-huh. I think in the United States, we're too scared of death, and we've taken death out of the home. Uh-huh. People just die in the hospital, and that's, you know, people don't know how somebody dies. They don't know the process of death, and hospice really can help you and help a family keep somebody at home and keep them comfortable. And we were so grateful, so much nicer to have her in her house than for us to be crammed in a hospital room, you know, with bells and whistles and IVs and dinging and, you know, all that stuff. So clinical and removed. Yes, yes. Well, so how did you and your father support each other after your mom's death? Well, we started talking, I mean, before she had hospice, I said to Dad, sometimes I think she's going to be okay, and sometimes I feel like she's dying right before my eyes. Mm. And he said, I know, I feel the same way. So after she died, it's awful, you know, I mean, I know, you know, Jana, you know, he was, it's like, he said, it's like losing your arm. Right. You know? Yeah. So we, because we live near each other, we... We cleaned out her stuff a few months after she died. My sister came, and we went through her closets and did all that relatively soon, which was difficult but good for him, I think. And he would help me with my kids. He would help drive some. He'd come over. I cooked for him a lot because it just made me sad that he would would never have the smell of cooking in his house again. Did he cook at all? Not really. Uh No, they had a pretty traditional Uh marriage. Uh Uh-huh. He can feed himself. He was not helpless. He can do laundry. <laughs> Just like my dad. He can, yeah. Yeah, he can keep the house clean. I don't think my dad know. could have done laundry. My dad, he could do laundry, and he still had the cleaners come, even though he's very fastidious. And he helped us. I, I have to say, he couldn't tolerate some of the tears uh-huh. or the sadness that mm-hmm. I had. You know, hmm. if I would start to cry, he would try to change a subject you know he he could only talk about it a little bit and then it's just too sad and I respected that and could appreciate that and I had other places to put my grief so he'd come and he drinks scotch with my husband and he is articulate and he talks a lot so that was healthy I felt like and he always felt like he was gonna keep living his life that your mother died but I didn't and I'm gonna keep living my life I admire that. Yeah. Well, it seems like he had kind of had some time to get used to it. Not that you get used to dying, but like my dad died so suddenly that my mother was just, we were all just devastated because, you know, I don't know, there's no such thing as a good death, but there is something to kind of being able to work through some of your feelings before the person goes. Exactly. I agree. You have time to think about it. Mm -hmm. And there's some relief. You know, I felt the relief because her last final days, you know, it was like a five-day death vigil, and th- that that's just wrenching. She was comfortable. She was unconscious by that point, uh-huh. but that was very difficult. So there was some relief that she hopefully is in a better place. Yeah. You know, my father's religious. He believes in God, and so that was comforting to him and all the Jewish rituals. Mm-hmm. You've talked a little bit about this, but I sort of want to talk, if you could tell us a little bit more about what were some of the hardest parts for you when your mom was sick, and did your relationship with her change in any way during that time? No, we had a really nice relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, towards the end, they hospitalized her once when she went down for that treatment, and uh-huh. I was like, what are you putting her in the hospital for? But I'm sure they thought I was crazy because they are like, well, she's getting treatment. 
Why aren't we going to treat this? And I'm like, yeah, but she's also in hospice. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> so don't don't torture my mother. But I stayed with her for the night she was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they talk about DNR. They talk about do not resuscitate mm-hmm. and what do you want to do. And so we had that discussion. And she's like, I just don't know. And I said, Mom, I think we all feel when we're not facing it, you know, when it's at arm's length away, you know, it's far away. Like, of course I don't want to be on life support. Like, who wants to be on life support if there's no hope for me? I said, I'm sure it's a little harder when it's right in front of your face. But I don't think that's what you want, and I wouldn't want that for you. And she agreed, you know. But when you're really facing, like I said, in theory, we're right. all like, oh, no, I don't want that. Right. But when you're staring at it, it's, yeah. it's harder to say, yeah, let nature take its course and let me go. She also told me that the rabbi had come by to see her. This was when she was at home one day. And I said, well, how was that? And she said, well, he asked me if I wanted to turn to prayer. And I thought that was a funny <laughs> way to say that. But um, And I said, well, did you? And she said, no, you know, like prayer isn't really what comforts me. And I said, well, what does comfort you? And she said, I find comfort in nature mm. and beautiful things. So, but, you know, it's just. I guess I kind of knew that about my mom. She wasn't yeah. a particularly spiritual person. So now when she's gone, I um, when she first, I still feel that way. If I'm getting the mail and say a cardinal like lands on the mailbox, I can't help myself. And I'm like, Mom, uh-huh. <laughs> I like to think that perhaps her soul is visiting me. Yeah. <laughs> so how old's her dad now? My father's going to be 80 in September. And he no longer lives in the D.C. area. Tell us when he moved and why. So my father has been a big Zionist, a big supporter of the state of Israel for many, many years, for my whole life. Mm-hmm. And 25 years ago, he bought an, they bought an apartment in Israel. And they would, they would go about twice a year and stay for six weeks. And they loved it. And while my father is the more religious, spiritual, political person, my mother could appreciate Israel for all its beauty and for the art and for the culture and the people and the food and all those things. But she never wanted to move there. I think my father probably did more, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but this was the compromise that they struck and it worked for them. And after she died, he went there to visit and he had friends there and he decided that he wanted to live there. And we supported him. He lives in Jerusalem, so it's nice when you're older, when you can still walk around to live in a, you know, a vibrant city. So he sold his house, and we emptied out the house. And it's lovely because the apartment still feels like my mother's apartment because yeah. it is. So he's living there, and he's met somebody else, somebody who was widowed about the same time he was, who mm-hmm. he... Maybe knew, maybe they knew them a little bit, but not really. And she's American, and she moved to Israel 40 years ago. And they're getting married. And I think it's lovely, and it's great for him. That's how you feel now. But how did you feel when <laughs> you first learned that your dad had a new lady friend? And is she <clears throat> age-appropriate? <clears throat> yes, she's age-appropriate. And she's a lovely person. Um, it's hard. It's hard when your parents were married for 54 years when they had a good relationship. You, you know, you, wanna, you remember your mother when she was healthy and, you, you know, she's frozen in time as she was when she died. Right. And you want your father to stay the same person, too. Mm-hmm. Or as my sister said, we had one mother. He should just have one wife, you know, <laughs> like, right? It's, but we were never upset about it. It's lonely we, yeah. you know, when you've, you've had a partner for all those years. I mean, I, I miss my mother, but I've got a house full of people. 
to comfort me and to keep me busy and whatnot and to do stuff with. He really felt strongly that he didn't want to be dependent on his children for his social life. Hmm. And once he said, you know, we invited him over on a Saturday night after my mom died, and he said, thanks, but I want to hang around with adults. <laughs> wow. And I was like, oh, I mean, I'm 50, but okay, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so while it's a little strange, and I'm sure it's strange for him too, I support it, and I would never get in his way, and I don't want him to be lonely, and I'm glad he's happy and has somebody to do things with. And, you know, the world is a small place, as my dad likes to say, with with the Internet and yeah. with texting and emails and the phone, you know. So right, right. I right. I don't feel abandoned. I still feel connected to him, and I'm I really am happy for him. When did you last see him? I saw him last in January. This came year over. Yeah, it's easier for him to come here. He doesn't mind the flight. It's a long flight, but he doesn't mind it. He's lucky he can fly business class, and mm-hmm. he also can sleep anywhere. So he's coming again with his new wife in June for two weeks. And so he's married now. No, he's getting married he's getting June third. Is he getting married here or in Israel? In Israel. And okay. so we're not going to go. My siblings both happened to be there recently, so they just saw him. And he's coming here a week after he's getting married. So he's totally fine with us not coming. I, I think maybe it's a little easier for him if <laughs> we're not there. And, you know, maybe it's a little easier for us, too. But I certainly would have gone if he wasn't coming a right, week later. Right. But they're, they're, it's going to be a small, low-key thing. It's going to be lovely and appropriate. And so. Right. When you saw him in January, did you notice anything new about him? Any changes in his physical abilities? He's slowing down. He's definitely slowing down. He keeps saying he feels good, and he does feel good. But he, he doesn't have the stamina that he used to. And he sleeps a lot, I would say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When he was here, the time before that, he flew to Indiana to see my sister. And he took like a 8 a.m. flight, and that means he got up at like 5. He's an early riser anyway. And he, he, my sister called me after he was there, and she said, Dad's sleeping on the couch. He's been sleeping a long time. How long does he normally sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I feel like we're talking about a toddler and not our potter, our potter familias. Yeah. <laughs> I said, he got up early. He's so yeah that was something to get used to for me too yeah right yeah seeing my mom sleep a lot is has been weird but that's that's, she's 87 now so you know wow so you wrote this wonderful blog post that was recently featured in the washington post newspaper when your widowed father finds someone new did you learn anything about yourself and your dad in the process of his finding new love well, it was, you know, what was interesting about it, when I said I didn't want him to change, he, you know, I would talk to him and he said he was going to a spa, getting a massage. And I thought, who is this man? Who is this man? My father would never go get a massage when he was married to my mother. Uh-huh. <laughs> but like I said, on the one hand, I want him to stay the same. On the other hand, I admire his ability to reinvent himself and to change and to grow. And that's what I aspire to. In fact, my writing that I started to write after my mother died, that has been a wonderful outlet for me. And I feel like it's a way I have changed as I am in my midlife. That's exciting and new. And so that's why I get it from my dad. Like, keep living. Doesn't mean that he didn't love my mother. He loved my mother. I know he loved my mother. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like he's not betraying her by getting remarried or doing something different. 
he's just living his life because we're all just passing through. So mm-hmm. I admire that about him. It's a learning process, but I don't know. Aging in this country is not something we really want to talk about. We don't want to, we really want to talk about death either. So oh, let question. me digress, but you're making me laugh because yeah. I remember okay. ta- not, about not talking about things. Yeah, you know, I don't know about you, but my parents always had cemetery plots. Oh, they mine did had too. Them. They had them. That was with my father's parents. So I want to buy cemetery plots, and my husband <laughs> is resistant to that. And I did write a blog about that a while ago <laughs> because I think that maybe he thinks they're going to find a cure for death. <laughs> so that he's avoiding it and i'm like dude we're all gonna die so we should do that how about for my our anniversary how about that (laughs) wow so what did he say to that no we haven't done it yet but oh i'll keep at him yeah my mom and dad had his and her plots yeah and that's like one less thing you have to deal with when somebody dies you know i have very distinct ideas about where I want my cemetery plot. So, you know, I would like I would like to choose it, frankly. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get on him about that. And he has no okay. idea of your Well, husband. I think he just doesn't he probably doesn't want to spend the money now. And I think he just right, doesn't want to spend the money and doesn't want to deal with it. But Yeah. And when I found out that my dad had bought a you know, actually he and my mother and my mother's sister, who was divorced at the time, they all bought plots next to each other and my dad said, Just don't put me in the middle. <laughs> put her on the other side but yeah, I thought it, I, mean, I thought it was I was I was simultaneously horrified and impressed that I think he did this in his 50s that they were thinking yeah. that far ahead and my dad was such a planner that's why I said to my sister about my dad getting married I was like well he's still gonna be buried next to mom right like so when you're but yes he will I wonder if his wife knows that his wife to be well i suspect she's going to be buried next to her yeah husband. yeah you know it's so wonderful though that they found each other isn't it and it's it totally a real, is it's, it's a real great. testament to the power of human beings to just continue and need love and connection no matter yeah. how old you are and they say that people who had good marriages want to be married again because it, it's a good gig you yeah, know it is a good gig it is a good gig I, I think it's harder for men to be alone um yes i don't think women necessarily like it either but women have girlfriends more right good point you know that they know how to socialize with you know right. men don't go to lunch and dinner and you know my husband at least plays golf and he goes to baseball games and that's i'm thrilled because that's a way that he socializes with guys right. you know with his friends separate from me Right. But a lot of my father didn't really have that. You Mine know, they either. were more couples people. And mm-hmm. while they still have some friends here, my father is sort of an outlier and he's interested in things that other people aren't as interested in, uh-huh. <laughs> like Israeli politics and, you know, religion and things like that. So right. Israel is just a great place for him to be. And his new wife shares many of those interests with him. So it's great. And she's religious. And so there's the whole. Um, Sabbath experience. When you're an observant Jew, you know, you have there's a lot of meals together and it's very social. Mm-hmm. You welcome in the Sabbath on Friday night and you go to synagogue on Saturday morning and mm-hmm. then there's a lunch after and you're often invited back and forth to people's houses and so it's lovely. Absolutely. Just going back for a moment, do you have any stories that stick out in your mind of like when you went to the hospital or with your mom or I mean, I told you that last hospitalization. You know, I think because they were worried about her breathing. 
oh. <laughs> with the people who were giving her chemo. And, oh. of course, we figured that, you know, her breathing was related to her cancer that was spreading. But they wanted to keep her in the hospital for five days to do IV antibiotics as if she had pneumonia. And I'm like, she doesn't have pneumonia. And fortunately, I have a friend who was a pulmonary doctor at the hospital. Uh-huh. And I'm like, you know, why does she want to sit here in downtown D.C. in a yucky hospital room? You know, can't you give her oral antibiotics and send her home? Uh-huh. Or then they were like, well, maybe it's fluid on the lungs. We could try to take that off. And I, I'm sure they thought I was just such a witch. But <laughs> my friend and I decided, okay, let's try that because that's just one procedure. And then why don't we send her home with oral antibiotics? So that's what they did, and that didn't help. And that they did a, um, a tap. They insert a needle into the face around your lug and pull out fluids. And I, I have a vivid memory of my mother sitting on the edge of the bed, leaning over, because they do it through the back, mm-hmm. and me holding her hand. And not a pleasant thing. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't their fault. Again, she wanted to do this stuff. Uh-huh. She wanted to live. And I had to go out to those doctors and say, I know this is kind of crazy. I know you're giving her chemo and she wants to live. You know, we hope it helps. But on the other hand, she's in terrible pain and I'm concerned about her quality of life. So they agreed to this plan instead of their plan. Uh-huh. And so that was when she was in hospice already and she went into the hospital? Yeah, yeah, because she was getting this treatment and she went there to get the chemo and they were like, oh, well, why are you on oxygen now? We better admit you and see what's going on. And they didn't call me, my parents didn't, because, you know, also that generation, they're just more compliant. I mean, that's why when you have a million doctors, they're not that good at managing it. Right. They don't question as much as we do. So true. So true. And that's why I feel like people our age really need to um, help your parents. I mean, the best term I learned was from my mom's oncologist. When I went to visit him just for a follow-up for my breast cancer, but we were talking about my mother, and, you know, I said, I just want to help them the best I can, and he said, you want to navigate them with grace, and I thought, that's my phrase now. That's what we all want to do with our elderly parents, is navigate them with grace. You don't want to take away their autonomy and their independence, but you do have to insert yourself some to ask some of the questions that they may not ask gently, and to just sort of help them have the best quality of life they can mm-hmm. you know i see that now with my husband and his his mother's ailing and um you know it's just difficult but you know fortunately my husband is a great guy and has learned a lot from being in my family uh-huh. and he is flying back and forth to chicago and he's helping to navigate them and uh-huh. he's very competent and he doesn't you know he'll ask my opinion if he wants it but he's very clear that he could, he's got it, and uh-huh. I trust that he does. And his family is different than my family, and you know each family copes with things differently. Sure. What so is she dealing I, with? She has something called ocular lymphoma that has spread to her brain. So she has been getting treatment, but her mental status isn't great, hmm. and he's unable to care for her right now. So she's been in and out of the hospital and sort of rehab facilities and you know it's sort of a slow decline mm. but it's difficult he's, yeah. you know, his father's 85 mm. and it's lonely and you know I think my husband is the one of his siblings most well equipped to talk about stuff so he's my husband's done a great job mm-hmm. he's probably and learned I'm a few just, things from you too as you said I think so yeah I like to think so, so. so I'm just 
I'm a consultant for yeah. him, but, you know, <laughs> he's got it. I'm not control. You know, I don't need to rule the world or control everybody's families. Right. Well, Susan, what sort of advice can you give to listeners about knowing when it's time to intervene with your aging parents? When you just think things aren't going that great, when you think they're looking to you for a little bit of help or advice, or when you offer advice or you offer some help and they start to take it. <laughs> yeah. I think... I mean, they're not children, so you don't want to infantilize them, but they, there comes this time where they're looking for guidance and help. So step in and don't be scared. You know, yes, you don't want to take away their autonomy, and they are, you know, if the people are of sound mind, they, they can make their own decisions. You can't force things on them, but don't be scared to try and don't be scared to gently push people in a direction that you think is in their best interest and help educate them and ask to talk to doctors if you need to, because often they're open to that. They need the help. They're overwhelmed, even if they don't always seem it. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see your parent as somebody who needs help, but we all need a little help sometimes. Where can people read more about your work? You can Google me, but it's called LetMeTellYouSomethingBlog.com. So a lot of my stuff is on there, and you can see me on Kveller. It's a Jewish parenting website. Kveller? I've written a lot of things for Kveller. K-V-E-L-L-E-R. Okay. Feller.com. Okay. And, um, yeah. Okay. Just keep looking out for me. Susan Stillman, mom, spouse, writer, and caregiver extraordinaire. Thanks so much for being on the show, Susan, and thanks for sharing your ongoing story. Thanks for having me, Jana. Okay. It's a pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including, most recently, on Google Play Music. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Go to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z, or Z, as my Canadian mother says, and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.